Okay, first I want you to hear a passage from Zechariah 9 before we even get going. 500 years, by the way, before the time and life of Jesus. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 9. I listened to a podcast this week. Um, well, actually, let me, tell you, let me tell you a little bit about Palm Sunday. So if you're not familiar with the story, we approach Holy Week, which this is, today is the beginning of Holy Week. Every single year, um, we approach Holy Week by telling the story that's sometimes called Palm Sunday, but should really more be called the triumphal entry, okay? Uh, but what it is, is the entire uh, gospel narrative in each of the gospels is essentially could be could, the storyline itself could be summarized by saying it is the journey of Jesus toward Jerusalem and the cross, okay? And so Palm Sunday is literally the time, the moment during Passover week when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, all right? So, so that's kind of what, what happens. It's about Jesus' arrival, and it's a rich story, and it's told differently by each gospel writer. Differently. Um, it's, it's full of nuance, and it's full of drama, and it's full of light, and it's full of dark, and all, all this interesting stuff. But I was listening to a podcast this week. Um, I think it's called Brave, Brave New World Podcast, and they, they connected Vincent Van Gogh to Holy Week. And I found it absolutely fascinating, and I'm going to explain why um, in, in just a minute here. Um, so when Van Gogh was um, living and doing his work, um, there was a new technology that was growing. And the new technology that was growing was about creating images, but not with pencil and not with ink, but by drawing with light, photography. Okay? And in, it was the, the very early stages of photography being created. And, and the claim that photography was making was that it was more realistic than ever. It was going to create pictures that were more realistic than had ever been, been made before. As you can imagine, a man like Vincent van Gogh disagreed slightly. Uh, and he said that art was able to capture something more realistic than photography ever could. What would that look like? A painting more realistic, right, than a photograph. Not simply light and details, but the emotion of a scene. Capturing um, the feeling of something, the essence of something. And that is, what, that is what good stories do. That is what good art does, right? Um, the artist, whether a photographer or a painter, they always, they choose to emphasize and bring out the deepest sense of the essence of what is important to communicate, what they want to show. And, and they shape the contrast. And that's how good storytelling is told, light and dark and all the shades in between and what is worth emphasizing and what's included. Um, Starry Night, do we have this? Yes, thank you. Starry Night helps us see this with fresh eyes. Um, I, I love this, this idea. You know, he painted this in one day while he was in an asylum. And some people think that it was just one sitting. But one of the things that he said about looking into the night, he said the night is more richly colored than the day. And if you look carefully, 
Some stars are lemony, others have a pink, green, or forget-me-not blue glow. It's clear that to paint a starry sky is not enough to put white spots on blue-black. So he wanted to evoke the essence of what it was like and say how it feels to stare into a starry night, not just show the photographic details. And his work is based on revealing the contrast to help us see just how magnificent the light is. All right, so that's what Palm Sunday is like, okay? It's told, like I said, in every single one of the Gospels, each with unique details, each with unique emphases and angles, to paint a certain picture, to tell a story full of emotion and full of contrast. This is more than a historic photograph, this is a painting. So you miss the point if you try to say, well, what this word here is missing from this word here, or, or this, that order, is it a, was it a, a baby horse, or was it a donkey? What, what exactly, just stop it, please. Okay? Here's where we're going to get at. In John, and I love, by the way, it's told in all four, all four uh, Gospels, which is always significant, anything that is. But in the book of John, we're told that when Jesus, so everybody tells that story that, that Zechariah announces. So Jesus comes in, he's riding on this either, yeah, he's riding most of the time on a donkey or a colt, okay? But it's, it's this very humble, this very humble thing. No saddle, nothing, you know, just a couple of, 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 you know, pieces of clothing on top. And he's coming into the city. In the book of John, everybody waves palm branches, okay? In Matthew and Mark, they wave leafy branches that they found right in the fields. In Luke, no branches at all, just cloaks. They put cloaks on the ground in front of Jesus. That's also in Matthew and Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke cloaks. So maybe we should call it cloak Sunday, and we should all wave our jackets, except for somebody get whacked in the face with a zipper. So probably not as, as artistic and, and, you know, as emotive um, cloak Sunday as, uh, as Palm Sunday. So I want to look at some of these elements briefly, okay, and I, I want to enter into the picture that the authors are painting and, and the contrast that each of them is trying to make, so that we can understand, yes, what it was like, but also how it felt, to experience Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, this, this kingly moment where there was also a ton of tension and anger toward Rome's oppressive occupation. These were all embedded in, in these symbols. So we want to pay attention to the depths of what's really going on and what God was doing and is doing now for us today. And so I would love if this comes. Do you know what? Dwayne, can you grab this thing and connect it and then bring it up to me once it reconnects? It just, it'll do it eventually. Might have to restart it. There we go. Thanks. Okay, so we're first going to look at uh, John's passage in the Psalms. Uh, and John's passage and the Palms. I just read my notes wrong. John doesn't have any passages in the Psalms. Yeah. So John's passage and the Palms that are represented. Okay, that fast? Wow. Thank you. It's amazing. Okay, so uh, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, so this is the Passover festival celebrating God's rescue out of slavery of the Hebrew people, okay? They had come for the festival. They heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting Hosanna, which means save us, we pray. Okay? Um, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it's written, Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming. There's the Zechariah quote. It was very direct. 
At first, his disciples didn't understand everything. It was only later that they figured it out. But here's what I want you to know about John's passage, and I mentioned it to a few of you as we were folding and ripping palms up and stuff. So palms, there's only one type of, of palm, the date palm, that grew out in this region. And palms don't grow well when it gets cold. And Jerusalem is very chilly in the wintertime. And so palms wouldn't have been in Jerusalem at the time. Now they are, but they've been transplanted there in, in recent years. Um, and, uh, and they still don't do particularly well. Um, but, in, but Jericho, the name of the city of Jericho was literally called the city of palms. And Jericho is about 25 miles away. So, we're guessing a little bit here, but if this is true, that, um, that the only place to really get palms, oh, here's the reason, Jericho, uh, it, was, it was not that far away, but it was also, um, like, I think, what is it, uh, 800 feet below sea level is Jericho, which means, I hope flooding's not like a major issue um, in this region, but, but Jericho is 800 feet below sea level, so it's much warmer. So it's tropical all the time kind of thing. And so Day Palms is called the City of Palms, really well known. And it wouldn't have been that hard for people to travel. People travel a lot to go there and get it. Here's why I'm saying this. If archaeologically and whatever this is true, then it means that if people went and got palms, it was very premeditated. They knew that they wanted to get palms to come and celebrate Jesus because Jesus was coming in. So they planned accordingly. And it was not just a spur-of-the-moment kind of thing like Matthew and Mark uh, tell their story with their emphasis that people just grabbed branches and came out. But in John, we're intended to know that they were palms and possibly there had been some planning to get them here. And here's why that's important, okay? Um, what happened was just under two, 200 years earlier, before this, the Syrians had taken over and occupied Jerusalem and, um, and all of its people. And they sacrificed a pig on the altar to, to just... That was, that was how much they were trying to disrespect the Hebrew people, right? An unclean animal sacrificed on their primary altar. Complete desecration of everything. And uh, there was this guy named Judas Maccabeus, and his nickname was The Hammer. And <clears throat> Judas Maccabeus re- uh, led a rebellion that was successful, that overtook and reclaimed Jerusalem for the Hebrew people. And so this revolt was super intense. It was super bloody. Um, and at the point of victory... The, day, the days after, the, the people got all these palm branches and waved them around as a sign of victory. And it stuck as a symbolic element of the Hebrew people. In fact, you can see a coin that was minted. Go ahead, there we go. Um, a coin that's minted, a Hebrew coin, that used um, this image of the palms as a symbol of victory. Okay? As a symbol of victory. And so just imagine the sea of palms in the past and what it represented. And then imagine the sea of palms in the present with Jesus. People heard him coming, recognized him as king, connected him and said, yes, bring on the revolution, right? And so, so this image of victory and rescue was continued to be used over the generations um, and, uh, and specifically it memorialized military victories from that point on after Judas Maccabeus. All right, so the palms are a reminder and they're a symbol. But now let's look at the cloaks because the cloaks are highlighted in three other passages, most specifically in the book of Luke which is <clears throat> something that we need to see and know. So let's throw Luke up there. All right. So um, in the story of Luke, we're told those who went ahead, they found it, meaning the, um, the uh, colt. Um, wait, I have two different passages. Let me make sure I've got this right. There it is. Okay. 
So, starting in verse 35, I, w- I was reading a couple of verses earlier. Starting in verse 35, they brought this colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. All right, and then we get a lot of similar things that happened before. And then the quote that I shared with you earlier. But what I want to talk about is why throwing their cloaks is so significant on the ground to, to the story of Luke. All right? So what ends up happening is when people would hear and see these stories... Remember, uh, the Hebrew people understood and knew Old Testament stories better than any of us could ever imagine. So every image that was a a carryover um, harkened back to something that they knew, some story that they had been told. This is how they learned. In school, you learned writing by the stories in the Bible. You learned math by the stories in the Bible. You learned everything through the stories in the Bible. And so so people could quote massive chunks uh, of this. But let's keep moving. So here's what happens um, with the story of Luke. So in the story of Luke, when you see cloaks being thrown on the ground, you ask the question, what's that all about? And then the next question is, is there anything in the Hebrew Bible that helps us understand this? And the answer is, yes, there is. In fact, there's a passage in 2 Kings chapter 9, and here's what's going on, all right? There's this, uh, Elijah comes, and he asks for this guy named Jehu, and he anoints Jehu as the new leader of the people of Israel and Judah. Okay? At the moment, the kingdoms are divided. And so, um, Elijah has this quiet meeting, and then he comes over, and he leaves. He runs away. I like that. So, Elijah, for some reason, opens a tent and just literally physically runs away. And Jehu walks out, and his officers come, and he says, what was that about? Everything all right? Why did this maniac come to you? Because Elijah had a bit of a, uh, what's the right, what's the, what's the, the kindest, he had a reputation. There we go. Um, and so, and, and so here's what Jehu says. You know the man and the sort of things he, has, he says. Jehu doesn't want to share what, what was actually shared with him. That's not true. They said, tell us. He said, all right, here's what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. You see this? Never catch this passage before, those of you that have known this? It's a fascinating connection. So they find out that Jehu has been anointed king. They quickly spread cloaks on, and then they shout, Jehu is king. So all of a sudden, throwing cloaks on the ground and celebrating, here is Jesus, the one who is coming to save us, right? A kingly welcome is all connected with this. But here's the thing. Right after this passage, Jehu sets out to see his rivals, okay? the king of Israel and the king of Judah, which is the north and south tribes who still held power. They see him coming, and they send out their servants to go and ask him. They, see, he's, they send messengers one by one to go and say, do you come in peace? And what Jehu says each time they ask that, he says, what do you know of peace? And he gets closer, and the kings come out to meet him, and he slays both of them. And he takes over. He personally kills them all with bloody vengeance. This is the story of the cloaks. The whole story, at least. The kingly welcome, but with the kingly assumptions, too, of what a king does, what a king is like. All right? You see these layers, the contrast, the light and the dark and all the shades, the feelings that this story might be evoking in people. All right? So now we're going to add one final layer to that, and this is something that if you've been around a while, you know, hopefully, but it's crucial, crucial to this story. Um, In the past uh, few decades, more has been uncovered about the culture surrounding Jerusalem during Holy Weekend or during during Passover week, 
okay? And one of the things that has happened or that's emerged is the knowledge of what Rome was doing when all of the people flooded into Jerusalem, all right? So during the time of Jesus, crowds would swell into Jerusalem, their holy city, during Passover. People would travel to go there. And in order to keep the peace and quell any uprisings, because the celebration was about God's rescuing people from an oppressor, right? So you can imagine, like, gets people pretty hot and fired up. So what Rome would do is they would send their occupational guard into Jerusalem with this large contingent of foot, of foot soldiers, okay? And so there were horsemen, and then they sent their prefect, which was Pilate, riding on a powerful stallion, a war horse. And they would come into the city. It happened every single year. The Roman governor of Judea, which was Pilate, he would come in his... his I don't know, summer home, was in Caesarea Philippi on the water. So he would travel over here and come down or come up, because Jerusalem was on a hill, he would come up the west side in this giant military processional into Jerusalem. All right? You, you catching what I'm putting down right now? Um, so what's, what's happening is on one side of the city, Pilate on his war horse and all of his armed guards to come keep the peace and remind people of where the power lies are coming into the city. And on the other side is a mockery, a piece of street theater that is happening that Jesus is enacting, riding the most anti-war thing ever, a donkey. Like nobody goes into battle with a donkey. <laughs> just stops, starts eating grass. You know, you just imagine this thing. And, and people are waving and celebrating Jesus as king. So it is, a, it is a clash of kingdoms. It's a big contrast. And so there's this beauty that Jesus is the real king, that Jesus is the bigger king, that Jesus is going to bring the revolution. And Jesus says that's actually appropriate to recognize me as king. It's very important that we understand that. That the recognition of Jesus as ultimate king, more powerful than Pilate, more powerful than the Roman occupation, is appropriate. However, the type of king that people are assuming is misguided. And we cannot, we cannot miss this because it is something in our lives that continues to crop up. The idea of, of raising and elevating God and, and worshiping and, and, and using the name of Jesus in such deep ways, but still not grasping the type of king that Jesus actually is. The type of character of God that is actually revealed to us through Jesus. And so Luke tells only the story of the cloaks, and then it follows it with this passage. Go ahead and keep, keep going on to Luke here. Um, oh, sorry, you can go back one. There's a, there's a glimpse of Pilate in the processional um, in some ancient art, and it's not great, but I just wanted to show you. I wasn't making this stuff up. Okay, all right. So in Luke 19, right after all of this has happened, Jesus gets within view of the city. And he sees Jerusalem. And when he sees Jerusalem, what happens? He starts to cry. And can we just talk about crying in public again for a moment? Because this is something that kings didn't do. Even when David did it, it was a sign of shame when he cried over his losses. But Jesus stops and he sees Jerusalem and he begins to weep. And he doesn't weep because he is going to die soon. It's very important. He doesn't weep because he's sad that I've really enjoyed the last 30 some odd years. And I really like you guys. And this is going to be a hard weekend. He weeps because in the celebration of his kingship, people are missing what it actually means to raise Jesus up as king. And he says, only if you would know what made peace. 
what made wholeness, but you continue to do your cycles of violence. You continue to think that I am the king like you have always seen, and I'm not. I'm a different kind of king. It doesn't work like this. I want to heal something much bigger. I want to stop the power, not of the Romans, but of sin and of disconnection and of oppression over all and of injustice. And so, so this, he says, but it's now hidden from your eyes. And then he says, eventually what's happening, you're going to continue in this way because you still don't see what brings peace. And the cycle's going to come back to you. And violence is going to come back to you. And partially, Jesus reveals it partially as judgment and partially as just the way that it works when we try to conflate God's kingdom with the kingdoms of this world and say that they're supposed to be attained in the same way. It will always lead to destruction and heartbreak and sorrow. Because you did not recognize what it meant that I'm coming to you as a different kind of king. So, so this moment, you know, and you can just imagine the disciples getting uncomfortable with Jesus crying and being like, I think you, your line is different, right? Your line is, let's go in there and get those, you know, SO-somethings. And, and they miss it. And they miss it. So... This moment is crucial in Luke. The cloaks have been thrown, and yes, the revolutionary, the revolution has begun, and the revolutionary weeps over the peace that his people keep missing. So God's heart is on display. God's sorrow is on display. So on one hand, on Palm Sunday, on Cloak Sunday, on the triumphal entry, on one hand, we have joy and celebration that is absolutely appropriate. And on the other hand, we have despair and misunderstanding. The contrast is what makes the light so bright. Maybe we need to do a better job at participating in the same things, friends, at Life Path. Maybe we need to do a better job of celebrating God's greatness and a better job of showing sorrow over the times that we just can't seem to get it right in this world. Maybe both of them need to coexist in new ways. The mysteries that we can't figure out, admitting sorrow for the suffering that we endure and the suffering that we allow others to endure instead of putting an end to it. The beauty of God's kingdom and our all-too-conflicted relationship with actually embodying it. This is Palm Sunday. So what does Palm Sunday lead us to? I think it leads us to a joy and a caution. All right? Um, and, and the joy is both um, the permission and the encouragement to celebrate and lift up Jesus as king. Okay? And that is not a joy that is intended to be taken away. It's the only time in all of the scriptures that Jesus gets treated outside of Revelation, that Jesus gets treated in the beautiful kingship of who he is. Okay? So, so that is crucial. Absolutely crucial. And, um, and the caution, then, the, the caution is to acknowledge that our longing for Jesus to be king doesn't always match the type of king that Jesus has told us that he is. So the caution is for us to be aware that Jesus is an unusual king. I'm just making that word up at the moment. I mean, I didn't actually make up the word unusual. It's been around for a long time. But, but that, we, that we understand that Jesus... <laughs> okay, how about this? Um... That we understand Jesus' methods will always reflect something different than the world around us. Praising the king, I mentioned, is wonderful and appropriate. 
but our praise should be with eyes wide open, okay? Um, that the kingdom and the king have come to set the whole world right. The whole world, not just you, not just your tribe, and not through might, but through sacrificial love, over and over, and it's not what we expect. We want the power, and we often want the revolution, and we want influence, and we often want force, if it achieves our ultimate goal. But Jesus refuses to be a king that works that way and brings about the ways that we imagine in the methods that we imagine. So he comes on a cult, and he invites a revolution that begins first with the heart, and then this subversive, humble revolution of the entire world that's founded on sacrificial love. So the palm branches of victory get transformed during the weekend into the hardwood of the cross. And so we have these to be reminded that the branches that we wave in celebration are sometimes misunderstood. And when we worship Jesus in the right way, we actually become transformed in a cruciform shape as well. In a shape that learns that to love Jesus means to worship God and to love God with all that we are and then to spread out our arms and love our neighbors as ourselves in really dynamic ways. So maybe Palm Sunday is a day that we learn to delight in God disappointing us. Like maybe we learn to be okay with the fact that so many times our preconceived notions of God are not exactly who God is and that that's a good thing because we lack creativity, we lack imagination, and we often lack the love that is so radical that Jesus reveals. So this is how we worship, right? In the shape of a cross. We worship the king who crucifies our sin and our violence and our expectations <laughs> um, and brings this new, this new thing. Just imagine, by the way, as we, as we close and move into some dialogue here, just imagine if everyone's worshiping expectations at the time of the entry had actually come to pass. Just imagine if Jesus had stepped into that role and you know it, even the disciples who had been with him a long time, they were kind of ready for the revolution. They were kind of ready to grab more than two swords, Bible trivia there, and go in and start the fight. Peter was ready to cut off more than just an ear in the garden, right? Like the, the, the whole crowd was amped up. So what if Jesus said, yeah, I'll take my power, I'll take my influence, I'll take my authority, and let's go. Let's rise up. And, and suppose they won. Freedom from an oppressor is a really good thing, yeah. And maybe that revolution lasted 50 years, maybe 100, maybe even 1,000. But just imagine how much more, because the method of Jesus is so different and the priorities of Jesus are so different, just imagine how much more powerful this movement of Jesus on a donkey, weeping, receiving the joy of the palm branches but refusing to use the methods that they would suggest, receiving the welcome of the kingship but not the violence against another that the king always brings. Oh, just imagine we are in such a more beautiful, better world because Jesus was not that sort of king. And so our expectations often pale in comparison to what God can do in the world. How big and how wide and how surprising. So we embrace the beauty of all of that. <sighs> um, so I want to this week, I want to praise God for not fitting our expectations. I want to praise God for not fitting into the kingdoms of the world and be thankful for it, not just frustrated by it.
Because we can all be a little bit of both, right? Um, and as a, as a community, as Life Path, let's not, let's not claim a Christianity. Let's not claim a church that functions like the systems of the world. This is going to happen. This is going to be something that we have to remind ourselves over and over again. Let's be different. We cannot talk about this enough because there will always be this mission drift in our lives and in our church if we don't constantly remember what kind of king Jesus is in contrast to the systems around us. Um, so, we remember the beauty of a story well painted and we remember that this is not just a bunch of facts that are interesting that historically remind us of what happened on Jesus' life. These are pictures painted to help us understand even deeper truths. While not discounting any of the history of it, that's not the point. Deeper, deeper truths to change who we are, not just to remind us of a timeline. All right? Uh, so, so today is an opportunity for us to live in contrast with Jesus, like that starry night, to live a story that notices how unique and how brilliant and how beautiful it can actually be to look like Jesus, to live and worship Jesus. Because the rest of the world might look and say, I know what Christians look like. I've got plenty of photographs and we have to paint a better story. And we can paint a better story without lying because we have Jesus. And so I invite you to just once again renew that commitment, renew that joy, renew that hope. All right. Um, so let's, let's take a few minutes for some dialogue. Uh, let's just pray first and then we'll, we'll take a few minutes for, for dialogue along these these questions that might stir us into some, some new ways of thinking. Jesus, once again, we, uh, we ask you to revolutionize our own spirits first, to remind us that you're just a different sort of king and that the way that you wield power and authority is just so different, like we've been talking about for so many weeks, Lord. So I pray that each of us would find it within ourselves to do the soul searching that's required. That if we need to step into worship in new ways, <laughs> to recognize how good you actually are, that you would open those doors. And Lord, if we, uh, if we struggle to embrace how radical your kingdom is in the world, how different your mission is, I pray that you challenge us, that you check our assumptions so that we might live uh, as real disciples. Amen.